Ayers on the Road, Parenting in a Modern World. Here's Richard and Linda Ayer. Hi there, it's Richard and Linda on the road again. Although we happen to be at home this week, which is almost a miracle. It's so great to actually land and unpack and stay here for a couple of weeks. But um, as always, we've had some exciting events. Let me just say on that point, Linda, that uh, (laughs) it's funny how... Some people have a glamorized uh, vision of travel, and uh, sometimes I'll be telling someone where we've been the last couple of weeks. They're like, wow, that must be so great to travel all the time. And and I'm I'm just speaking for me and not for you too, honey, but I actually like the times when we come home the best. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I like that too, obviously, and we're kind of ready to... Stay home for a little bit. No, we aren't. We're we're off to uh, do where California and then Dubai and Abu Dhabi and Pakistan. That's kind of a progression, isn't it? Going from California to Dubai to Pakistan. <laughs> right, that is. But, but anyway, speaking, that'll be a couple weeks. But we're speaking to parents in all three places, and here's the funny thing: they all. You, you may say, "Boy, that'll be three different audiences," and it will, of course, in many ways, but. Uh, It'll be different religions, it'll be different economic levels, it'll be different uh, political uh, ideas. But here's the great thing, I guarantee you, all these parents will have a lot of the same hopes, the same fears, and the same sort of vision for their children, the same kind of love for their children. That's what we like about speaking to parents. It really is. It's just quite amazing, and I have to say that I'm particularly... Um, feeling tender toward mothers this week because I've been reading a book that I, I was sent and asked for an endorsement on, and it's called Choosing Motherhood. And, wow, I didn't expect what I would find there. There are 16 mothers who um, all chose motherhood through a different path, but all did so with a lot of faith and a lot of um, gird up your loins and dive into this and see what happens, and it really was quite an amazing experience. In fact, Linda's just been telling me about it all morning, and uh, we decided, sort of a last-minute uh, adjustment, kind of an audible, that we're going to talk primarily today to mothers and about motherhood, which, of course, is right in line with our subject anyway. But you dads who are listening, just turn off your radio. No, just kidding. You can listen, too. Because maybe us dads can grow in our appreciation for what mothers do based on what we're going to talk about today. Well, and I think probably we need to talk about dads, too, because, you know, this parenting thing is getting so huge. You realize parenting was not a word 50 years ago. Um, People just mainly had children to help on the farm or, you know, to facilitate a need and so on. Well, and, I'm not sure that's the only reason they had to. Well, I'm sure there were other reasons, obviously. But, you know, I we both came from big families, and I came from two big farm families. And, you know, they needed kids to work on the farm. And, of course, they were wonderful parents as well, but that was kind of in uh, passing. Um, they just needed to make that farm work, and it really is a whole different genre today when you think about parenting and especially mothering. What are the thoughts you've had today? Is you've, been, you've basically been reading essays from a bunch of different mothers, and, and all pretty much young mothers, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, well, they are pretty much young mothers. I went through this whole 15 
quite young mothers with two or three little children for sometimes. I don't think anybody had more than four. But then at the end, they had a woman who was a Fulbright scholar whose resume was just out of sight, uh, living in Vienna, met her husband, and they decided that they wanted to have a big family, and she has 14 children, two sets of twins, one right after the other, and then they went to somewhere in Africa and adopted another child from an orphanage, which was a long process. Why did they put that essay in there? That would have very little, well, maybe I better not say it. I was going to say that wouldn't have much relevance to today's smaller families, but uh, maybe we can learn from extremes. Oh, my goodness. It was amazing. She, I would worry about it if it was a center city mom or somebody in the ghettos or something, but this is an amazing woman who had, you know, uh, credits that were unbelievable, and then to stop all that and just go with his family was really incredible. Story. So it was it was kind of the whole point of the book. People who have chosen, people who've had a lot of options and and have chosen to prioritize motherhood over all the rest. Right, they have. There is a woman who worked for the White House. And she was leaving at 2 a.m., having done a big thing. She was about to go get on the jet with the first lady and, and had, was all you know, involved in her career and then finally came to a point in her life where she decided that she'd better go home and start a family and realized how much more important what she was doing with her family was than what she was doing with the first lady. I mean, in the long run, they're doing something for eternity. I mean, it lasts forever and ever and ever. Generations and generations are depending on a mother now. And you just don't realize that. It's hard to see the big picture when you're just in your little pod, you know, trying to slog through the chaos of every day and all the hard things that are involved in motherhood. Um, you know, there are just so many things that we, there are surprises that we don't expect. You're in the trenches, you know, you're sleep deprived and and kids are naughty and, and you don't know what to do about this weird stage the child's going through and so on. But then you realize as time goes on that, you know, all that is actually worth it because they turn out to be pretty amazing kids, not in every case. I mean, as we've said before, sometimes you get an apple tree and sometimes you get a lemon tree and you just never know what that little seed is going to be. But just the effort that you extend to produce a child and not saying that you can produce them because they come who they are, but just the time and the effort, the food, the love, the getting to piano lessons and soccer and all that is just really worth it when you look at it in the long run. In fact, I've also been working on an article this week um, about the long-term perspective and talking about um, when we first had our family, there were so many issues. Every child had uh, was in a weird stage or had an issue or something. And I'm in the perspective now that they're all out of the nest, and and most of them are parents now. I see those little things that were driving me crazy become one of the great tools that they have to succeed in their life. And it really is hard to see that when you're there. I mean, we had a child who, an 18-month-old who was in the toilet every day, not just dabbling with his little hands, but I mean in, 100% in, leather shoes, jeans, the whole thing slogging up and down and making weird sucking noises. Well, what did we what did we ever decide? He thought it was a little mini personal swimming pool or Yeah, something. I think so or an inner tube or 
something. Honestly, I woke up every morning thinking, oh, my gosh, are the bathroom doors closed? Where is it? Because we had four bathrooms, and he managed to slip into one of them every single day and get in that toilet. And I was so obsessed with that that I just couldn't, I could hardly think of anything else. And then time went on and time went on, and, and one day I realized I couldn't remember which child it was. And I thought, how could I forget that? Because it was such an important part of my life during those 18 months. And then, of course, it was Noah. So then, duh, how could I forget that? I mean, Noah and the ark, I mean, you'd think I'd remember. <laughs> well, you know, let me <clears throat> let me just uh, go back to the word that these women are using in the title of their book. Didn't you say it's going to be called Choosing Motherhood? Yeah, yeah. Let's think about that word just for a minute. The word choice, we hear it, <clears throat> we associate it today with with the pro-choice movement, with women making the choice about uh, whether to have an abortion and so on. And yet, that's kind of an unfair expropriation of the word because the choosing aspect, I think, is so interesting today when it comes to parenting because it used to be in generations past, as you pointed out, Linda, that... uh, it wasn't really a choice whether you have children or not. Of course you'd have children. That's what families did, and that's what was required to live a rural or, or a agrarian lifestyle. And, and we live in a world today where uh, there really is a choice. And, of course, many people are choosing not to have children at all. And each time a, fa- a family, and, and, of course, because we have birth control methodologies and so on, it, can, it really can be a choice. And... We have a range of parents or a range of adults who are living together or married making a wide range of choices on the one extreme having no children at all and the other extreme having several. And each time that a couple decides to have a child, it is a momentous choice. And I think one of the positive things today, it's it's easy to hear so many negative things about families going to the dogs and Parents aren't not take, you know not being focused enough on their kids and on and on and on. And it's easy for a lot of us to feel a lot of guilt in our own parenting. But when you think about it, the thing that's really quite refreshing today is when primarily when Americans uh, who have a reasonable degree of education and socioeconomic status when they decide to have a child, it is a choice, and it's and and there's something powerful about that. Because you, you, you make a choice with your eyes wide open. You know this won't be easy. You know that it'll, you'll sacrifice a lot of things for it. And I think the result is that parents today are probably preparing more and working harder at mastering, as it were, the methods or techniques of parenting, quote-unquote, than at any other time in history. And so that's a good thing. The problem is... The, the overlay with that is that we're so busy and have so much on our plates and are trying to accomplish so much and, frankly, have so many options when it comes to electronics and entertainment and so on that it gets increasingly difficult to find the time and the mental energy to implement whatever plans or hopes or dreams we have for the kind of parent that we will be. And so... You know, it's like, I guess to quote Dickens, it's the best of times, it's the worst of times. When you think about parenting in today's world, some things are better than they've ever been before. Some things are worse than they've ever been before and harder than they've ever been before. 
And um, my hat is off to those like these women that you're you're reading today and endorsing their book, Linda. And my hat is off to women, particularly mothers, who make the choice, I am going to be a mother, and I'm going to be a good mother, I'm going to be a deliberate mother, and I'm going to make the sacrifices necessary to raise a family that I am proud of and to do my best with the children that come to me. Now, we've just got about one more minute before we go to break, and then um, let me let Linda summarize what she's learning from this book. And then when we come back after the break, we're going to do something very uh, different than the first half. Instead of telling you about theories or hypotheses or other people's books, we're going to suggest to you the four things we think are the very most important things, four, only four, in raising children. So we'll shift in the second half to the practical. But Linda, take just a minute before the break and summarize. Well, I think we do need to mention that our daughter and her co-director of their website, PowerMoms.com, just did publish a new book called Deliberate Motherhood. And it really is wonderful. They've collected 60 mothers who have written about 12 different um, powers of mothers, the power of love, the power of purpose, and all those things, which are just is absolutely phenomenal. It's so great to see these mothers, you know, raising up and banding together and really doing something with their motherhood. It's, it's, it's del- they're deliberately doing it. I love that word because it's not just, let's have these kids and see what happens. Let's have these children and really help them to fly. And as we start this second half, I want to just one, make one more comment about one of these essays called Teach These Souls to Fly. So we'll talk about that when we come back. And we're back. So before we give you these four points that Richard talked about in the first half of the show, I want to just end by saying, by talking about this little essay by one of the mothers called Teach These Souls to Fly. And she was in Germany uh, riding in a train. She had four kids with her, and it was kind of chaotic, but, you know, it was they were having a great time. And her sister had come to live with her for the summer. And her sister leaned over and said, um, I hope you don't mind my asking this, but uh, why would anyone want to be a mom? (laughs) And she said, I was just flabbergasted that she would say that because here I thought we'd been having all this fun with these kids, but as a single adult, she really had a hard time, a young adult, had a hard time wrapping her mind around who would want to stay home with kids and go through all this and have to stop to change diapers and feed people and go to the potty every every other minute. And uh, she really handled that beautifully and talked about a piece of art from William Blake, who is totally crazy. I think he, I should say, is a genius. He's totally a genius, but this artwork is so beautiful and it's entitled Teach This Soul, These Souls to Fly. And it's just a picture of a mother turning back she's going forward but turning back and grabbing the hold of a little child who obviously has no idea what's going on in the world and she grabs him and you can tell that she's on her way to teach this child to fly and it really is so amazing to think that this is what we're doing with our children we are teaching them to fly and in the end it's the most important thing we can possibly do all right linda now um this is this is putting this is called putting honey on the spot because we did not talk about this before the show. This is kind of a serendipitous show because we're we're going by what's on our mind this particular week, and 
I think this will be very interesting, honey. Let's let's tell the the listeners today the answer to this question. If you could give parents only four keys, four touchstones, four principles on which to base their parenting and their efforts to raise a strong family, what would those four be? Now, you and I haven't discussed this, and I'm going to suggest that I give one. That'll be number one. You give one. That'll be number two. I'll give one. That'll be number three. And you give one. That'll be number four. (laughs) And it's going to be very interesting to me to see if, I mean, I know the two I pick are are the two most important things. Now, the question is, are you going to be able to come up with the third and fourth most important thing? I thought you had those four sitting in front of you. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh-huh. So you be thinking hard because I'm going to give number one right now, okay? All right. Number one, I, if I could only give four pieces of advice to a parent, the number one thing I would say, and this may surprise some of you, would be to have clear goals and to write them down. It's amazing to me that in a world where so many of us live by our goals and our plans every day in our work or in our career, we, we hesitate and don't very often set clear and specific goals for the kind of parent we want to be. And I think that there's nothing that enhances a person's effort and a person's ability to try to prioritize the most important thing in their life, namely their children, like actually writing down what the goals are. Now, I'm going to give you an example, but I don't want you as, a, as an individual parent to necessarily copy or follow this example. I'm just going to say that early on in our lives, we decided that we had three separate goals according to the age of our children. We decided that when they were young, when they were preschoolers, the most important thing was to help them to be happy, to teach them the various kinds of joy, from the joy of their body and the joy of the earth to the joy of their imagination and their creativity. And we, we decided our goal for those first five years of life was to emphasize happiness, and we did a lot of work on it. See, that's the thing. Once you set a goal, it's incumbent on you to do a lot of work on it. So we did a lot of thinking about what kinds of joy there were and how to define them and so on. Then for their elementary age years, we decided our goal was to teach them responsibility. And we worked on that in many ways with many long hours and many efforts to talk to other people and get advice and to figure out how do we get these kids who are now six, seven, eight, nine, ten old enough to conceptualize responsibility, how do we get them to really understand and live responsibility? And then when they became adolescents, when they moved on and became early teenagers, our goal was teach them to be sensitive and to be extra-centered rather than self-centered, to focus on other people's needs and not their own. Now, just by themselves, those goals are pretty... You know, they're, they're not particular, they don't have a lot of teeth to them. But when you set a goal, it's incumbent on you then to work on the plans that fit into them. So, so number one, I would suggest of the four is set some clear goals for your parenting. All right. So my first one um, has to do with um, something that everyone will identify with, and that is knowing your child's 
love language. I mean, it isn't just love because obviously love is the the overriding principle that makes the family work and makes a relationship with the child work. They have to feel that unconditional love. But it's more than that. Um, I really think it's so important to think deliberately about each child and what their love language is. How do they absorb love? Because some kids are different. I mean, two of our daughters need praise. I mean, if I called them every day, and these are kids that are now out of the home. These are empty nesters, and I'm just now learning this. If I called them every day and told them, how much I loved them, how much I admired what they were doing, how wonderful they were, it wouldn't be enough. <laughs> they just need it so much. Others of our children don't need it so much. You know, they, they are fine. They're, they have other things that they're worried about. For some children, it's touch. It's, you know, grabbing and hugging them uh, once a day. Some kids don't like that. They like to have their space, and although most children do like that. Um, for some, giving little gifts is is important. And, you know, it is, if you figure that out, some little gift totally changes their day or their mood or whatever. Um, so it's important to figure that out. There is a, uh, probably most of our listeners know there's a book called The Five Love Languages, but it's really for adults, for uh, relationships, for marriages and so on. And it's very helpful, but... They've now done a huge thing for children, and so that you can go to, I think there's some stuff online, uh, if you just go to the five love languages for children, if you Google that, I'm quite sure you'll come up with these little tests that you can take, and so that you can really understand what is your child's love language, and then give it to them. Okay. We just spend so much time criticizing our children, and you know, trying to correct them and make them better people. And really, the best way we can do that is learning their love language. All right. So here we go. We're building our list. Number one is set some specific goals for your parenting. Number two is learn each of your children's specific love language and apply it. And number three is make your home an institution that lasts. Now, institution may sound like a funny word to use with a family, but an institution in the positive sense, whether it's a school or a government or a club, something that lasts and that goes on and that inspires loyalty and devotion among its members. And I'm going to say that there are three ways to do that, and they're, they're all important, and you're all doing them to some extent in your families, but you might want to focus on them and improve them more. All institutions have three things. Number one, they have laws or rules. Yours need to be simple and clear. Number two, they always have traditions or rituals and you need to write yours down and make it clear that this is what our family does and this is who we are. And number three, they always have some way of sharing responsibility, which we call a family economy. So I think that point number three of the four most important things we would suggest for families is make your family an institution by implementing and staying on top of rules, and rituals, and an economy. Okay, so I think number four, and you might guess this, Richard, because I'm a big advocate of this, and we were just talking about this yesterday with some young parents. Um, I think the, one of the major things that we need to teach our children while they're home is how to work. 
teach your children how to work. It really is so crucial. I mean, we've talked about this before on the radio show, this whole entitlement age when kids think they get something for nothing and that they want, I want, I want, I want, without any work or without any delayed gratification. I think it is so important to teach our kids how important work is in their lives. And it's hard, again, when you're just in a little pod trying to teach a child how to clean a toilet, um, how that's going to work for the rest of their lives. But you know what? It does. One morning I woke up and thought, oh, did I teach Eli how to clean a toilet? I'm just not sure if I did that. Probably his wife knows by now. You know, I mean, that's silly. But at the same time, it really is so important to teach kids that they just don't get something for nothing. This group that we had yesterday were so interesting. A lot of them had worked hard when they were kids, went washing dishes when they were 12, mowing lawns when they were 13. One mowed a baby sat for, you know, all day long uh, in a trailer house, and the kids kept locking her out of the trailer house. And, you know, just hard jobs. And as I looked out of that audience, I thought, you know, these are a group of fabulous parents. And the reason they are so fabulous is because they were taught to work. And in turn, are we teaching our own children to work as we worked when we were little kids? And the only thing I would add to that, Linda, is, and I'm sure you're implying this, and I agree, I think you hit the exact the right one for number four, teaching them how to work. But uh, don't assume, parents, that you can teach them to work in the same way that you learned how to work because my has the world changed in one generation. Yeah. It's not many kids today who live even in a safe enough neighborhood to just wander down the street and try to get a lawn mowing job or to um, you know, offer their services as babysitters or to you know, do a lot of that, get a paper route. I mean, paper routes don't even exist anymore. I had a paper route... Uh, a lot of our kids who are oh, now in their 30s do, have honey. a paper route, but they're, they're, well, they're hard to find. I mean, number one, very few people take the newspaper anymore. And number two, a lot of big commercial people distribute the paper. So my point is, you don't, don't assume that your kids will learn to work in the same ways that you learn to work. You may have to create ways to have them work within your home or find them little jobs outside your home that you can control and feel safe about. But whether you do it in whatever way, the point is they need to know how to work. They do. And how much time do we have left? We are out of time. I'm going to let you close for both of us. Well, all right then. We just hope that, and and actually we really enjoy this half hour with you. Um, We hope you'll join us again. Um, We hope you'll give a thought to how important motherhood is as well as those four things we talked about to create a really incredibly solid, uh, deliberate family. So thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week on Ayers on the Road.